from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about accelerating our national cybersecurity strategy. I'm joined uh, by two guests from uh, Accenture Federal Services. I have one here with me in the first segment, and then uh, we'll have both Tom and Gus uh, on in the second half of the program. Uh, so I will uh, let Tom uh, introduce himself. But, uh, Tom, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Brett. So my name is Tom Greiner, and I'm responsible for Accenture Federal's technology business. So uh, for, for folks that are um, outside the Beltway, or the San Antonio Beltway here, uh, is, and don't uh, know too much about the federal service, how is that different from Accenture overall? Yeah, so Accenture, Accenture Federal is a uh, wholly owned subsidiary, technically a proxy company of the broader Accenture corporate entity, and it's a structure we need to be able to serve the defense and intel industry at the scale we're now serving it. So it was a requirement by the Defense Security Service that we have a U.S.-based entity that, um, and now that we're full under proxy model, we no longer require NID or national interest determination requirements to do work for the government. Uh, we can just do it. That's great. And, and you've been in San Antonio for a while. I know uh, we've had um, one of the folks on from uh, Sam Houston P-TECH High School here, which Accenture Federal Services has done some great work with uh, to get that up and going. And Ben Peavy, I want to give him some thanks and shout out for spearheading those activities. If you wanted to learn about what's going on with the Cyber P-TECH High School, uh, you can check out our archives on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com or uh, out there on your favorite podcasting app as well. Um, but I mean, so you guys have been in town for a while, but you have some uh, an event and some new announcements going on here um, that you're in town for. Right on. So uh, yesterday we launched our Accenture Federal Cyber Center uh, and the kind of the keystone uh, piece of that offering is our managed detection and response capability. So, uh, and I could wax poetic about that or uh, yeah. or you could peel into it. Yeah, so... Uh, I mean, yeah, for folks listening out there, they're going to hire a bunch of folks uh, here in San Antonio uh, that are going to look at all the stuff that's happening on computer networks and try to find bad guys before the bad guys can do any harm. Right on. Is that a, that's a fair short version of that? Right. And uh, and uh, why we think it's relevant to the, the buying public, both, yes. uh, both federal customers and, frankly, any commercial, most likely critical infrastructure customers who want to keep their work onshore. Um, uh, we, the parent company of Accenture has a managed security service capability in Bangalore, uh, and for many clients, that's fine, but for others, they want an onshore capability. So we are now serving that community out of San Antonio as well. Um, and our thinking is with the, uh, the crush of demand, especially inside the beltway, but I suspect here in San Antonio as well on cyber talent and, uh, the increasing both attack surface and attack vectors and number of attackers, um, there's just a fundamental mismatch in supply and demand of capability. And there are, um, there's really a conundrum for our clients and how do I attract and retain the best cyber talent and keep my technology kind of right up to where it needs to be to, to fend off my attackers. And 
that's not an, a mathematical equation that works for most. Uh, for the largest ones, it certainly does. But for many of the smaller mid-sized ones, they, they struggle. So our thought was a managed security service offering that, uh, that we can build and keep the latest technology. We could use AI and robotic process automation for uh, getting rid of the bad guys at speed is uh, something that the market could take full advantage of, uh, clients could use and dip into on an as-needed basis, and they don't bear the burden of retaining and attracting that talent and building the latest tech. They could just rent it from us on an as-needed basis. Yeah. If folks want to find out about uh, where they can they can go to learn more, um, if they're, they're hearing this and going, yeah, I need this capability, Tom, where do I go? I think the first logical place would go to the Accenture Federal website, um, AccentureFederal.com. I think they can also go to Accenture.com if they're a commercial client and navigate through to us if that's uh, an yeah. easier path. And if for new clients, I think that's no great. If you're already working with Accenture, reach out to the partner that you're talking to that's as right. well. Yeah, yeah local even if the, even if that partner's in a different area of the organization, they'll they'll help get you across to uh, Tom's group here. Right on. So, uh, as uh, you guys were looking at building this this out, um, you could do this in any city anywhere in the U.S. I mean, like you were looking that you have client demand specifically to be in the U.S. How did you guys end up in San Antonio? Right. I'd say there's a couple compelling reasons for us. One, as you mentioned earlier, we have an existing San Antonio presence. We already have in our federal group, we have 1,300 people across a couple facilities uh, doing uh, largely application development and infrastructure support. Um, and we have uh, maybe another 800 people out of our commercial entity doing more back office operations. So we've got a couple thousand people in San Antonio and a commitment to the area anyway. Um, we also just see the uh, commitment that San Antonio has made to developing cyber talent at a junior age and creating, frankly, a supply chain of talent that, um, that as our needs grow, uh, we were confident that San Antonio would be here to support us. So the combination of those two of A, we already have a presence, and B, San Antonio is really probably the second hottest market for cyber talent in the country, uh, just made it a natural place to land our, our managed security service. Yeah, that, that existing practice that, that Tom talks about, there's some news articles uh, that have been out there, but uh, one of the things that they application could do application development for and to keep secure is uh, right now we're kind of everyone's in the middle of tax season or maybe you just finished, but irs.gov is a, a publicly shared client of the Accenture group here uh, in San Antonio. So there's uh, not much more of a more uh, high profile target out there than that. And this is the kind of skills and talent that they're looking for inside of their business to keep uh, things like that, that folks from all over the world are, are going after, after websites like that on a everyday basis. Yes, uh, every day, and um, and we're thrilled to support probably forty different clients out of the San Antonio Delivery Center, and uh, and I love that we have a managed security service that any one of those can consume now. Yeah, and and so uh, for uh, new listeners to the program, um, uh, some of the things that uh, I think came into Tom's decision, you can check that out in our uh, archives as well on the website or, or via your favorite podcasting service. But um, the Cyber Patriot um, is a team sport uh, for your kids in middle school and high school to uh, learn cybersecurity and uh, learn team sports and competitiveness in the San Antonio area. Um, has more teams uh, than any other uh, area, even larger metros. Uh, so we're doing well to roll it out, but there's still, um, I think, 10 football teams for every Cyber Patriot team here in town, and each football team has 20 times as many people. So 
there's a whole bunch more kids playing football than they are playing Cyber Patriot. And um, Tom, you go, you guys hiring football players? Maybe <laughs> if they have cybersecurity skills. <laughs> right on. But you're definitely hiring cybersecurity folks. So parents out there, if you want your kids to play team sports and, and get skills at the same time, uh, please check out Cyber Patriot. Uh, the season just wrapped up. One of our schools here uh, in the San Antonio area, uh, three of them advanced to the national finals, and one of them uh, took home a trophy there from the national finals. So you can learn more about that at uh, the Cyber Patriot website or uh, Cyber Texas Foundation uh, here in the San Antonio area. If you're listening outside of uh, the San Antonio market to this program on iHeartRadio, uh, please uh, get uh, involved in your school districts, uh, get schools uh adding Cyber Patriot teams. This is an international program now uh, as well. There's there's teams in Korea. There's teams in Japan. Uh, and this program, uh, Australia, this, this whole program is going global. So there's a real opportunity there. But that's that beginning of the talent pipeline. I guess we've also had uh, guests on the program from um, all of the five um, NSA and DHS accredited centers of excellence here from cybersecurity um, on the program talking about the the different things they're doing at the universities here to create that next level. And um, for folks that are thinking about cybersecurity as a career, there's a whole bunch of different areas all the way from you, you, it, you don't just have to be Mr. Robot and hacking in front of a computer screen. Uh, they need folks that can handle and think about processes and logic puzzles and uh, problem solving. Uh, it's not all down in the, the technical weeds because many of these attacks um, end up uh, coming in through through vectors that are not necessarily a super computer programming technical thing. Uh, I mean, there's a if you've been following the news and reading along, uh, there's one of the Secret Service agents um, did something uh, a couple of weeks ago down at Mar-a-Lago. There was uh, in Florida a Chinese uh, operative uh, dropped a USB stick and uh, on the in in their person that the Secret Service person and we all make these mistakes and this is why I'm calling this one out here in the air. I know they're trained to know not to do this, um, but they were so excited and in such of a hurry that they didn't think and plugged that USB stick into their laptop. And just because it looks like a little thumb drive that's going to store information does not necessarily mean that's what it is. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, things you can do with those. Um, and that device that was stuck into that computer, they figured out real quick and just shut the system off. But it was not something you should be plugging into your computer. These, if you have a an untrusted USB device. Uh, if you see one in the parking garage or on a ground, don't take it and plug it into your computer. Please just throw it away. If you really think it belongs to somebody who knows who it is, ask them and give it back to them. But if you don't have any idea who it is, just throw it in the garbage. Um, and, and this is so you have all this kind of stuff going on here in San Antonio. And we have the mix of the, the military. We have a mix of a, a private sector um, cybersecurity operations. I used to work for uh, the, the phone company here, and we, we ran some of our activities out of uh, San Antonio. Um, and so with uh, your growth and build out here, when do you guys go from um, kind of the missions that you're, you're operating and the clients you're serving now to having this new center online? Oh, it is on site online now. It's been online for six months. Uh, we just did the formal ribbon cutting ceremony uh, yesterday. Oh, well, that's wonderful. So yeah, the mayor came, kicked off the event, uh, Port San Antonio, local FCO branch. It was, uh, it was a really, it was a well-attended event and, uh, and we're thrilled we got to more formally introduce it, but we're up and running and um, it is uh, operating and stopping bad guys every day. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I didn't realize you guys, uh, the, the articles that I were able, was able to read about it sounded like it was going to get built out over the course of the next uh, couple of years. Or is this maybe another new building? Uh, let me, yeah, let me uh, put a little color to that one. Okay. So uh, we also uh, almost concurrently made an agreement with San Antonio 
to uh, locate another 500 jobs here over the next four years. So that may have been also top of mind for you is just our commitment to continue to expand our presence in San Antonio and certainly having a cyber center uh, as a, an additional capability we offer will uh, help us fulfill that promise even more quickly. Yeah. You're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio, and uh, we're talking about accelerating our national uh, cybersecurity strategy. And uh, if you're out there uh, running a business or working on a uh, uh, cybersecurity team uh, for a company or for an agency, uh, you can learn uh, much more about uh, what Accenture can do to uh, help you. Uh, with that and a little bit of color and context and other things going on in the San Antonio area about uh, cybersecurity. If you just turned your radio on right now, you can listen to the uh, rebroadcast of this. It'll be uh, up on our website at on Tuesday, April 30th. Uh, it'll also be out there on all of your favorite podcasting services. Uh, if you have a podcasting service where you prefer to listen to uh, things and you cannot find our program on that service, reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter. We will fix that and we will get you a CyberTalk Radio t-shirt. And for the technically inclined in the audience, if you would really like a t-shirt, set up your own podcasting service. We'll add our stuff to it and we'll get you a t-shirt for that. So we're uh, joined by uh, another member of the Accenture team here now, Gus Hunt. And Gus, can you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself and your role? Sure. I'm the uh, lead cyber strategist for Accenture Federal Services uh, in that role, uh, trying to help establish the uh, future direction of where we need to take cyber, what we need to be able to invest in and to communicate with our clients, uh, what things they need to be able to do to really become uh, much more cyber secure as they move into their future. So as, as you, you go across um uh, the kind of different agencies have different budget levels and different priorities. And I know, uh, so we've had um, Congressman Hurd on the program and he's got a, a committee uh, where he's part of where they, they go through the, the report cards, I'm going to call them, for these different agencies. They score them on letter grades on how they're doing. And when I had him on the, the program, we were talking about um, Department of Homeland Security. And so for listeners out there, if you think about federal government like a, a big business the department of homeland security i guess my understanding of it it it's like 16 different agencies that went through a merger um it got a bunch of stuff combined under one big umbrella there's 16 different chief information officers in there so it's like they've merged together but they haven't done a, in the private sector we would try to do a corporate reorganization and you end up with one chief information officer but it doesn't sound like some of that stuff happens uh, on the, the federal side or not in a super timely manner. So the some unique challenges, I think, out there for those that aren't working uh, with these type of governments and agencies, there's very large departments. And in, in a private sector company, there's kind of a very much top-down decision-making process and a consistent set of policies. And if you're going to do something from a cybersecurity budget perspective, it rolls out everywhere um, pretty consistently in an equivalent manner from a risk you're going to look at the risks at a holistic level and allocate budget but with the way the government does it it makes things a little bit uh, more complicated for you guys as you um, are out there working and servicing um, all of these these different clients I know um, how do we help some of these agencies that don't have budget money get this stuff surfaced because we can't continue to have I mean one uh, somewhere sitting around because all these agencies are connected with each other as well yeah, yeah, the weaknessing problem is true in the federal government as much as it is in the rest of, of the globe, for that matter, if you really think about it that way. Yeah. Uh, and that, uh, that no matter how good you are, uh, you know, the, uh, yourself, you are actually vulnerable through your weakest link. And this is what's emerged. We talk about this as the cyber poverty line, this concept of cyber haves and have-nots. Yeah. And unfortunately, in the world of cybersecurity, what, is, what has emerged 
uh, is in fact is and is growing is this is this this differential between companies that have the resources and can afford the talent. You know, talent is scarce, and we all compete for the same talent. So we keep driving talent prices up. The threat is complex. Uh, the uh, the uh, the solution space is extraordinarily fast moving and uh, and itself a complex entity. And so what you are getting now is you're getting those that have the resources and the wherewithal who can build really secure cyber environments, and then you have those that don't. The problem is, is that the vector now for attack, and you've seen this in several situations recently, has been through third-party support organizations that yeah. come in and like the way they jumped the electric grid, the air-gapped electric control grid was through their th attacking the third-party support vendor who then plugged in and then delivered the malware into that environment. And so in the federal space, you have the same thing. You have federal agencies that, that are very well funded and very often you have more than 100 um, uh, very small federal agencies that have all the responsibility but don't have the resources to do it. So one of the reasons we're here in San Antonio with our managed detection and response center and managed uh, cyber uh, solution center is exactly that. How do you provide, uh, how do you elevate them to the posture that the other agencies are at so that we are not vulnerable through that as a weakest link. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if in the commercial sector, the same thing's happening. Target has a, and yep. they have now, they have even a better, but even back three and a half years ago, Target had a really high quality cybersecurity organization mm -hmm. and managed security team uh, inside their company. But in through one week link through a, an HVAC vendor, um, folks were able to get in and steal 150 million credit cards. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean that you you wouldn't think if you're going through your risk assessment, you're like well, the folks that are maintaining our air conditioning systems. I have to be super thoughtful about. But now, I mean, like the the concepts of yeah, this vendor security and connection security and supply chain, and yeah. I mean the, the cyber team, even at a, a well funded, well run organization there like Target was, um, I'm, they may not even have been aware that that HVAC vendor had connected onto the the network at the store um, because they may have just the store manager may have made that decision and never communicated up. So these are some of the the challenges as well out there. It's, it's just like you can you can manage to secure all the things that you know you have, um, but it's being able to find out uh, where did this come from and then that response portion of it to track back to figure out the things that you didn't know you had on your network. It's really yeah. the conundrum of the expansion of internet connected devices, right? So yeah. um, both understanding and discovery of what the heck do I have? How did it get there? Uh, what is it capable of doing? And why is it pinging North Korea again? Why is my baby monitor pinging North Korea? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the uh, the uh, casino and the uh, internet connected fish tank, right? You know, they got attacked through their own fish tank. They yeah. don't even have to be smart devices. No. In fact, some of the most, most uh, lethal, uh, most dangerous ones are the ones that really aren't smart because people don't think about having to put security into it. No. All right, okay. Yeah, I mean, it goes back. I mean, there's a lot of the, the stuff I think about over the last 20 years is um, people would, would get um, onto the printers inside of organizations because printers were all connected to networks. Um, they all had um, FTP and other different protocols exposed on them. And um, the yeah, bad guys are looking for things that you can't patch and update and maintain very well. Yeah, that's, that's the, that's, as Tom mentioned, that's the IoT world that we're unfortunately stepping into where this rush to market of smart devices you know, uh, your smart toaster, right? It tells you that your toaster's ready while you're up brushing your teeth or wherever it's going to be in the morning, right? Uh, that device itself, uh, there's no the security into that is an afterthought, right? Yeah. And and it's and this rush to market to make money is really relegated that to, and it's going to become a huge problem. We're we're increasingly talking to clients about their OT security posture, like they're asking questions: Should we have an OT sock and an IT sock? Should they be 
combined into one entity when there's an incident? Who responds? Do I send an IT security person or do I send an OT incident response team? And what does their flyaway kit look like? Like, there's yeah. legitimate mature dialogue around OT security with a with several agencies at this point. Yeah. And so one of the things we've seen some in the uh, private sector, and I'd still say not enough. So if you're out there and you are a CEO or a chief information officer or a general counsel, the 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 chief information officer inside of a, a private company is generally um, tracked on on uptime and, and getting new application features out to market to improve process and improve productivity inside of a business. And security usually becomes, it's going to be one of their bonus targets now potentially, but it's generally most of their bonus is about uptime and delivering features out and managing cost. Um, and security is kind of going to slow stuff down generally and make things more expensive. And so I, I recommend um, to boards and to CEOs that your information security and your cybersecurity should sit under legal or should sit somewhere outside of IT, um, especially even now as, as you have more of your technology being delivered probably out of your, your sales and your marketing organization potentially than your IT organization. And that's a whole uh, another one to think about. What are you guys seeing from a, a, on the federal side of things for organizationally? Is IT and IT security, that information security officer reporting up to the information officer still? Well, well, I, I think it depends, but let me take this a slight step yeah. in a different direction, which is what we believe has to happen in the federal market and also in the commercial market is that these organizations need to adopt true DevSecOps practices, where you bring to the table IT and security and business together to make conscious decisions to get complete transparency as to what's going on, right? So now uh, there's not a question of when, uh, if you start this from the very beginning and you build security in at every step of the way, security doesn't become a stumbling block. Security actually can become a business enabler because you're delivering much more secure code out to your people, to the people that do business with you, other things like that across the board. But that's our push getting our clients to adopt DevSecOps and using that as the core to bring together IT and cyber, and particularly bring together IT and cyber and business investments to deliver the best outcome across the board. And uh, answer your question on structure, it's all over the board. Yeah. Uh, there are CISOs that sit independent and report to a deputy secretary. There are others that flow through the CIO. There are CIOs who double hat as a CISO. Like it's, uh, so it's, it's a consistently inconsistent. Yeah. yeah, it's the same. Yeah. So, they, I mean, and this is, I think, a, a good one for for listeners to learn about is that, I mean, the public and private sector have a lot of the same challenges. Um, and when when uh, folks out there listening as well, if you, you wonder, well, like, I mean, how big are some of these government networks? So the, the Air Force has disclosed um, over time that I think they have the second largest network in the world behind the uh, Internet itself. And so the Air Force operates one network and then the internet, we all, a whole bunch of companies all operate in a shared resource together. But I mean, so that's the size of some of these networks and the complexity, the challenges. So as you're out there thinking, you know, our, our federal government's not doing a good job on all these things. Um, I mean, it, imagine running the whole internet or something that's near that size. And in we don't hear about the Air Force. They, they're getting attacked all the time. Um, and you don't hear about terrible breaches and system outages and all sorts of things. So uh, give our government some credit and give folks uh, like the, our guests here on the program and their teams uh, some credit for doing uh, great work because uh, the, the world's not all full of friendly people that just want to get along with each other, sadly enough. Technology is making things much easier, but it's also adding in um, additional complexities with the speed and the movement. Uh, and uh, as you 
uh, look out there. There's lots of, of things that are, are challenges um, we're starting to address on the talent side. We'll talk some more about the talent and where the, the kids are going to uh, learn on this and the workforce challenges here after the, the break. Uh, but one I'll go ahead and close with is uh, we need to have more conversations about this topic. I know cybersecurity is the scary thing. We're afraid to talk about it. We're afraid to say anything. We have to get out there and get vocal. Uh, I'd like to give some thanks to uh, Brad Smith, the chief legal officer at Microsoft. He's been calling for a Cyber Geneva Convention for years now. Um, and this is there's no rules on a lot of this stuff right now between nations and even um, anything down and through into the private sector on how it all works. And if we don't start talking about it and figure out some rules, it's going to get real complicated in a hurry. Uh, if you'll stick with us here through a news traffic and weather update, uh, we'll be back. Uh, Tom, Gus, and I will... Uh, talk workforce and uh, many more interesting topics here in the second half of the program. If you won't be able to stick with us, uh, check us out uh, online at www.cybertalkradio.com. Uh, this program will be up on Tuesday, April the 30th. Welcome back to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm joined by Gus Hunt and Tom Greiner from Accenture Federal Services. And we're talking about national cybersecurity strategy, uh, some of the programs that are rolling out here in the San Antonio area. Uh, and uh, if you just turned on your radio right now, uh, you can check out the full uh, rebroadcast of this episode uh, up on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com uh, on Tuesday, April the 30th. It'll also be out there on YouTube if you'd love to see a picture of us. Uh, we do not do live uh, video in the program studio. Do not plan to any time in the future. And then if uh, you do enjoy podcasting, you can uh, check us out on any of your podcast services. You can uh, listen to this episode or uh, learn uh, more about some of the things that we will be uh, talking about because um, in this segment, uh, we're going to go through a little bit of uh, kind of as a risk assessment cybersecurity, like where do you start and how do you do all this stuff is the first half and we talked it's a big things things are a big challenge things are moving fast stuff is always changing where do you allocate dollars and resources and we're going to talk some about that as well as then if you're uh, one of the cyber patriot uh, kids out there uh, on a team right now wondering what do i need to do to to build skills to get hired by accenture uh, maybe in one of their high school internship programs or uh, in one of their jobs uh, that you could get after high school or after college. Um, I know they've, you guys have recently changed some degree requirements either for some of these roles. Sure. Um, so we have uh, folks coming straight from high school with some work experience. We have uh, associate degrees and, uh, and of course, we have a number of undergraduates onboarding. So all are valid entry points. Yeah. What about uh, our enlisted folks here? I know. So we've about 400 people. Um, technically, uh, they go from uh, a service to non-service here in San Antonio. Um, on a monthly basis, um, some of those coming out of InfoSec roles, some of them maybe going through the Microsoft uh, Systems and Software uh, Academy that's here, or uh, some of the other uh, veteran transition programs. Uh, is that another uh, kind of valid path to find uh, roles with you? Absolutely. That's, uh, in fact, a wonderful path. And we have uh, jointly sponsored programs with both Salesforce and SAP out of our San Antonio Delivery Center. Um, and uh, I think our Headcount hiring is about running about 25% of uh, both uh, transitioning military and military spouses. So it's a wonderful community for us. 
Yeah. So how did how did you end up? Uh, we'll go back a little bit through your career because I think for the high school kids, they always like hear folks like us on the radio, and they're like, I mean, can I ever get there? Is this something I could do? So how did you find your way into cybersecurity? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'll I'll give you how I found my way into Accenture. There you go. Give you how I found my way into Sounds cybersecurity. Good. So. Uh, I was a psychology and economics double major at Vanderbilt University and uh, had not a great idea of what I wanted to do next. And uh, one of the firms that reached out and suggested I come to their information session was at the time Arthur Anderson's management information consulting division. And I said, hey, a lot of the smartest kids in my class are in this room. Um, I must have chosen well to come listen to what they had to say. And uh, they were a very, uh, you know, kind of young and vibrant presentation. It sounded pretty interesting. And the work was up in New York City, but I thought I'd give it a go. And I uh, eventually transferred down to Washington, D.C. And while a psychology and economics double major, I ended up digging more and more into technology. And the firm said, we're just looking for clever people. Like, we'll train you if you don't know it. And uh, they did. They trained me and I learned. And um, here I am running a 7,000 person tech business. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's kind of a, a great piece, as we were uh, mentioned in the first half of the program. Uh, the economics, so you can, you've got the fundamentals to think through the, the value of risk and then the psychology of, of, yeah, what are these people doing? Why are they doing it? What are their motivations so that you can and help on that risk assessment at the, the macro level? So, uh, it, this is one that is out there, kids. You don't just have to study computer science. Um, if you're not going to get an 800 on the SAT in math, that's okay. You can still get into cybersecurity. Um, this, so this is, yeah, it's not just Mr. Robot. And Gus, how about how did you find your way uh, here to our radio program today? Uh, well, you know, going back a little bit, uh, I actually have a bachelor's and master's degree in engineering from Vanderbilt University as well. There we go. <laughs> did you guys both know this before? We did. Yeah, okay, we did, you did. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, I was civil structural engineering, so I started life actually as a as an aerospace engineer working out in uh, and out in California doing the shuttle orbiter division back in the early days, um, and then uh, by hook or by crook I wound up in CIA and was there for 28 years and uh, retired as the chief technology officer there. But I also before being the CTO I ran uh, application services where my background and my knowledge of cybersecurity is how do you build really secure systems themselves, right? Yeah. And, and, and I have a real bias, as Tom knows, in this direction that, that what we really need to do is help our clients build secure as the, as the initial get-go out of the chute, right? And, and understand what it takes to harden your data, to harden your systems, to harden your networks, to become, uh, to become um, uh, uh, moving target defense style things, those sorts of stuff like that. How do you put all that together as they build for their future? And that's the way that we're going to actually address a lot of these cyber problems. And it's the only way we're going to get ourselves in front of the cyber threat. So this will segue some into uh, this this risk assessment piece. So you, you have businesses now, and on the, the business leader side of it is data storage uh, for kind of just keeping everything. The costs go down every year, keep it in an unstructured manner and just blob it out there. The more data you keep, then somebody bad can get into that data. So like the cybersecurity side of me is like, if I don't need it, throw it away because then no one else can take it from me and do bad things with it. So uh, how do you have some of these kind of conversations of like build the giant data lake or, and the other one is like, they also want to combine all the data into one big data lake, put everything in one spot so that you can do AI and machine learning and you can gain insights and analytics in your business. But the your risk assessment hat is going to say, don't put everything into one place. Well, there's this little thing called encryption. Yeah. Okay. And <laughs> and uh, and if as you build out your data lakes, 
I use a, I use the term Lakes. plural for yes. uh, uh, for a reason. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and that uh, that you can still do all your AI and learning across multiple data lakes, right? You just have to architect it in order to take advantage of things. But the bottom line being is that we know how to hard, we know how to store data securely, right? So you know how to move, have it secure. Well, you know transit. how to store data securely. Right, yeah. The collective uh, well, we out there, I'm not going to say I, we're so good I, at that I, yet. I, I, okay. Well, that's, well, that's so. For example, yeah. right? Uh, turning on this go to Amazon, right? Yeah. The S3 buckets. You can turn on encryption that's automatic on your S3 bucket. Yeah. That should that should be the outcome that anybody goes to use Amazon or Azure services automatically, nothing gets stored in the open, everything gets stored in encrypted buckets, S3 buckets and things like that, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and they do that for you. You don't even have to think about it, right? And then turn on SSL and other things like that, and now you've got encryption in transit as it goes through, right? So, so th these are little things that you can do automatically that you don't have to have any knowledge or skill about, particularly if you use your cloud providers well, uh, that will dramatically elevate your protection. And then you don't have to worry about one, I don't have to worry about somebody breaking in and stealing all the data. Yeah. Now I have to worry about things like credentialing, right? What should you be allowed to have access to? And so now it becomes a question of marking your data and tagging you so that I can make appropriate access control decisions about what you're allowed to see. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's a it's an interesting and challenging one, and I think some of the cyber poverty line discussions that uh, we had at the start of the program as well. Like, as I um, used to work with some large financial services clients, and for folks there, as they rolled out virtualization, uh, they also we we worked to roll out um, encryption at the uh, kernel level. So um, they've got a separate key management server, and that key management server. Uh, gives a decryption key to that VM to actually be able to use its own memory. Right. Yeah. Um, and then at any time you don't trust that VM, you just revoke the key and then it, it shuts itself down. Um, and this keeps rogue VMs from being able to, to, to find their way around environments and all sorts of things because they all have to, to check in with the key management server and you, you get that those ability to control stuff. Like So you've got folks at the the very sophisticated side of rolling out that encryption. Then you have other folks, in like you said, just tagging permission. And they're like, well, I just... I have this like one account, it's called data science, and this data science account has access to all of our data, and we've got a password manager that a group of 12 of us share the one data science account. Yeah, and this is, I guess, from a, a training perspective, you're out there in, in UTSA and you're working on cybersecurity policy, go please work for that company that's got the one data science account that has 12 people sharing it. Um, it how, do you, how often do you guys see, I mean, stuff like I'm describing right now, you've got the super sophisticated clients, but I feel like there's more of them out there doing things that are still not at the hygiene level where I would feel really wonderful. Agreed. I, I, I suspect virtually any organization you look at is going to fail some degree of a basic hygiene check. Um, even if they are investing in more higher end capabilities and services, um, it, it's to, in our experience, it's the rare organization that's done that with a mind toward what are my high value assets? How am I best protecting them? How am I being thoughtful about aggregating or not aggregating them? And who might care? And what new attack vectors might that introduce? And um, and how am I, from a risk trade-off standpoint, how am I going to take my limited budget and apply it in the most intelligent way to secure the things I really care about? And uh, you know what? If my community um, newspaper website uh, gets hacked, then maybe I don't have to secure that with quite the degree of intensity I'm going to you know, secure the PII of the customers I sit on. Yeah. So uh, switching back on some of the education piece a little bit, I was thinking. Uh, so uh, here you you have um, some master's programs here, like in reverse engineering of malware, um, very specific cr um, 
skill, very specific set of fundamentals and things you learn there uh, versus a broad, uh, more broad program that is uh, about kind of cybersecurity risk management. As you guys are, are hiring up and you're going to have 500 folks working in this um, center that you're going to hire over the next few years here, what is the kind of mix of those where you've got very specific technical skills to through to kind of the broad policy perspective? Right on. So I would think a general understanding of the basics and uh, really a some business side on kind of how organizations make decisions on criticality of business processes is an important kind of fundamental underpinning. And from there, um, I would just let your personal passion drive you into whether you really like looking at data and the visualization of it, in which case a cyber analytics or threat intelligence path may make more sense to you versus uh, digging deeper on the infrastructure side and really understanding the nuance of key management service and how it's going to work once quantum computing comes along and how is that going to change the game on encryption. Yeah. Like you could go a lot of different paths, but I would say a, just a core basic underpinning of how does infrastructure work, how do applications work, and how does business work would, would serve any of your listeners well. Yeah, well, we're all going back to one-time pads. <laughs> no, hopefully not. No, there's, there's for those uh, not paying any attention to quantum cryptography stuff. Uh, there's uh, whole groups working on how to deal with that, but I feel like the quantum cryptographers are ahead of the quantum computing people at this point in time. So if we ever get some good working quantum computers, I th I'm pretty sure the cryptologists have figured out um, already uh, what we can do other than just elliptical curve math, which is mostly what we do right now on the cryptography side of things. Uh, so uh, don't panic. Um, quantum computing could cause some problems for data that's stored in an old manner in with current encryption if we ever get to good quantum computers uh but if if we um if you're this you're actively managing that data um then you're going to have encryption available to you to, to roll out that uh, that will work you don't you won't have to go all the one-time pads um although for your super high risk most secret sensitive stuff you should be encrypting it with one-time pads still um and there's not anything any better than that you should store those off somewhere extra safe and separate from that data I mean, like if you're for listeners, like if you have something that's as valuable as the full schematic designs of uh, a CPU or uh, a uh, uh, an airframe or other things like that, if it should be stored with something as secure as a one time pad, my perspective on, on those ones. So from a risk management perspective, like there's it, businesses have confidential data, like whether they wouldn't want it on just a, a paste bin dump, but it's not critical to their business like it would be embarrassing it would you'd have to get your crisis management team going and handle with the pr and then you have stuff that is is absolutely critical to your business like if you're intel it's your chip designs like that that stuff is out there because not everyone in the world honors intellectual property laws they could be catastrophic to them um how do you as have a conversation with a board or leadership teams about balancing that the and where you put your controls and time and energy uh, to me, it's really starting with the value, the value chain story. Like, what are they? If it's a government agency, what is their mission? Yeah. And what are the enabling capabilities that allow that mission to be delivered successfully? And then the underpinning of what are the IT support capabilities that support that that value stream? So uh, it's not that hard. Um, it's just uh, slightly laborious to map it out and and help them separate the wheat from the chaff. Taking a slightly contrarian view, coming from yeah. my background, 
Um, I, one of the issues about encrypting data X but not data Y is that you've just disclosed that data X is much more important to you than data Y, okay? Oh, that's interesting. Okay, thought. think yeah. about it from that way. So now if I'm a bad guy, I know exactly where to go to attack. I know where I want to get to. I, I can use human engineering to do at this thing and do it, right? If I, if I encrypt everything in my environment across the board, it all looks the same, and therefore I don't have a clue where to begin, all right? So that's one. Two, running multiple different environments at multiple different levels actually may be more expensive for these organizations. In other words, I have a specialized environment that only protects my most sensitive data in the world, and it's going to turn out that, that the price per unit byte of data I'm protecting is going to be astronomically high relative to something else. And so when you really think about building it, if you start from the basics, which is you're going to build this in from the get-go into all of your new environments across the board, it turns out that, that the, the, there's really no cost uh, differentiation. If you have a, the, um, the cost of doing so becomes a much more palatable cost across the board, and you wind up in a much more secure posture as an organization. Yeah, so the simplicity cost like reduction offsets the additional security control cost increase exactly right yeah so in fact I mean, it probably more than offsets yeah maybe cases. Yeah. yeah so yeah. i mean i guess it's if if you you think about it from that perspective then so like i mean why do we have fisma low moderate and high like why don't we just have high well some of us don't uh, well yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or and they, you may operate at levels above that in your former life. Exactly. Yes. Right, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So as you're out there having conversations with agencies, I mean, do you recommend that they try to get to a single unified security posture right now? Is I think a lot of them are f probably afraid to. I mean, I uh, my recommendation would be that uh, that agencies take a thoughtful approach of given the amount of money they have to spend, given what they've already done to date, given all their projects in flight. And given the future trajectory of their their budget over the next couple of years, knowing yeah. what they can commit to and actually deliver successfully, uh, is all an important part of understanding both their risk posture and their actual ability to get things done. Because the worst they can do is start getting it done and then have to stop because there's a change in priority or funding availability, and they got a half baked solution and it doesn't really do anything but waste money. Yeah, if, if organizations would adopt, um, uh, in my view, uh, Tom is right, right? That's a much more practical, rational approach uh, to dealing with this. But however, as organizations go through IT modernization, and in the federal government in particular, they are, they are been given dollars to modernize their existing environments. If they actually take an approach that is going to move them into the new world, into the cloud environments and things like that, so they can take full advantage of them, what they need to do is to take a logical approach that says, I'm going to begin to break my, 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 my vertical silo of excellence down into different horizontal layers of things that are going to happen. And so I've got to create a data lake, okay, in order to really take full advantage of the cloud and integrate my data together and run AI, and those you mentioned this earlier yeah. okay, in the talk, right? So I'm going to invest to build my data lake, and I've got to get that started, and I can use IT mod dollars to get that started, right? I've got to, then if I'm going to have a data lake, I've got to have a very consistent access control decision service around what people are allowed to touch inside the lake. I have my data models. What's curiously interesting about this process is that the first one is hard break all those down. The second one gets easier because I've already got in existence data ingestion systems and I've got my data models established and I've got my access control services established. Now I just have to pull out the unique pieces of my second system and build those as services, right? You see what I'm saying? And then they begin to build and, and, and so over time what happens is they begin to have all the components and ultimately what you are now having to reinstantiate out of your legacy environments are the actual business processes that are that thin differentiating layer on top 
because everything else is now in common underneath, right? That model works really, really, really well. Uh, but it just takes commitment and it takes focus and it takes time. It's not something you're going to do in a month or two months. It's something you're going to do over multiple years uh, inside of your environments. It's a journey that we encapsulate in the phrase digital decoupling. So yeah. how do you take your legacy, move it to the new, do it securely, and do it in bite-sized consumable chunks? Yeah, it's, I mean, it, yeah. for listeners that don't work in large enterprise or in, in the federal government or other um, state and local governments, uh, these folks have uh, thousands of applications. Um, so it's not just they're running 12 different pieces of software inside there. Uh, and many of these thousands of applications are all custom written applications for specifically for that business. So they can't even go buy a migration toolkit from somebody else because no one's written a migration toolkit for their custom application. So uh, it's a long-term, yeah, and, and complicated, challenging. So as we're um, I, over in Europe, you've got GDPR, and like there's, I think there's a lot of legislative stuff now to talk about privacy on the consumer side. And is there anything like? I would love to see us do something on a minimum cyber. Like we've got Sarbanes Oxley on the financial regulatory control side of things that hold people accountable for being negligent with your financial controls, but we don't have anything at a, a policy level on the in, out in, from coming from DC or at the states that I'm aware of that really hold the private sector accountable to do anything right now. Right. The feds have actually done a better job holding themselves accountable. As yeah. you saw with OPM, there's there's definite ramifications on the single uh, uh, authority at an agency, the senior most authority, to yeah. make sure that they are actually implementing the policies to which they are um, uh, required to submit. So uh, I've seen less, though DHS has done a very nice job standing up ISAC and ISALs, the information exchange organizations, within certain critical infrastructure sectors. So... Um, I see them leaning in where they think it's most important to help, uh, but driving uh, both incentives and um, punishments, monetary and otherwise, are, I think, still a ways away. But I think it's an important part of what the government can do to drive the behavior change and the incentives in such a way that people want to be more secure and, and choose it as a destination. Yeah, you you got to remember that the federal government actually has done this. We got the HIPAA controls. You got the you got the uh, what, what you know, for the credit card industry, PCI. Yeah. PCI controls. They've already stepped into this in other ways uh, in order to drive some of this privacy uh, and data protections uh, forward. Are they at the GDPR level? Uh, no, uh, but GDPR is something that while the, well, it's been put into place in Europe, it's something we have to watch very carefully because it also is, can have a uh, an inverse effect on on innovation and other things like that. Yeah. Do we need some form of privacy and privacy protections? I think absolutely. Uh, I think that we just want to really make sure that when we begin to go into this space, we go into it with some form of uh, a thoughtful with a thoughtful uh, uh, engagement, learning from what's happened in the past with these other. Uh, uh, control regimes and things like that. Yeah, because I guess on the consumer defense side, the GDPR also includes some financial repercussions if you you are collecting information. It tells you what you can and can't collect, but then it also says if you are collecting it and it ends up out there through a, a security breach that you're going to be liable for fines. So, I, I mean, I guess I hadn't really thought GDPR has introduced some of that, and it's uh, I mean, it's definitely going to introduce some challenges uh, over there on just restricting the what you can collect and how you, you, you can do certain things. Um, yeah. yeah, maybe the, we do need some of the uh, the accountability piece over here. Well, the legal structure also is way behind the technology structures. We were yeah. talking previously about encryption. Right. Uh, under GDPR, even if the data is encrypted, it can't leave the country. Right. It must be re data resident in the country. 
if the data is truly encrypted, it doesn't matter where it is. It's no. white noise, okay? Yeah. And, and, and it would enable companies and corporations to take maximum advantage. The question is, is where are they going to then do the work on the data so that it becomes decrypted and then others can see it? And that you can force to happen within the countries that, you know, that, that require you to have data residency laws and those things like that. Yeah, it's all about where the yeah. key's at. Exactly. Yes. That's exactly. Where, where, yeah. Where's the key? Right. Yeah, the key should never leave the, the country. But with the way GDPR is written, you're actually allowed to send your key out of the country because the key does doesn't specifically have any PII exactly. of a EU residence. You can you can store your keys anywhere, but you can't store the encrypted chunks that have the PII inside of it. Yeah, yeah, it's a, a little bit of a backwards one. This is why if, if you have a, a background in cybersecurity and you uh, have a heart for uh, public policy, please consider running for office. Uh, I mean, we, we need more folks out there uh, that have a background in this because, um, I mean, there are folks um, up there working on, on trying to, to make laws and to try to help in these areas. But if they don't have the in-depth knowledge and background and experience, um, I mean, it's very challenging uh, to, to get in and get the law caught up or ahead of where it needs to be. Uh, and be uh, be very proud of your local representative, Will Hurd. Uh, yeah. Amazing representative of all things IT and cybersecurity on the Hill. Yeah, if you, I yeah, wanted to hear a little bit from him on on cyber and, and some of the things that he's been working on. Uh, we've had him on the program, and you can check uh, that out uh, on our archives at www.cybertalkradio.com, as well as uh, on your favorite podcasting service. Um, I hear the cool kids like this thing called Stitchers. Um, I have Pocket Casts, and um, I'm not cool enough to have an iPhone, so. Um, but the iTunes were on there as well. So uh, thank you, uh, gentlemen, very much uh, for joining us this week. Uh, any uh, parting thoughts, ideas, comments for our audience? If you uh, just tuned in, uh, this is Accenture Federal Services team. We've been talking about national cybersecurity strategy uh, here with us today. Well, thanks so much for having us on, Brett. And uh, again, we, we're thrilled to have launched our managed detection response capability and the ribbon cutting ceremony yesterday. Uh, we are open for business and, uh, and actively stopping bad guys every day and thrilled to be uh, increasingly part of the San Antonio community. Yeah, Brett, thanks for the opportunity to, uh, to speak with you and your audience here. Uh, it's, uh, this is probably one of the most critical issues that we're going to face as a nation and as a globe because as we go into our full-blown digital economy of the future, uh, unless we have confidence and trust in what's going to be happening inside of the environments, it's, none of this is going to come together. Yeah. Well, thank you both. <laughs>